Section 19 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Doctrine of the Reformed Church on the Lord's Supper, Part 2. In what sense is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? The authorities above cited and the private writings of the Reformed theologians are abundant in teaching that Christ is present in the Lord's Supper. They represent it as a calumny when the Lutherans asserted that the Reformed regarded the bread and wine as representing the body and blood of Christ in no other sense than a statue represents Hercules or Mercury. Zwingli says, We have never denied that the body of Christ is sacramentally and mystically present in the Lord's Supper. They admitted not only that he is present as God and by his Spirit, but in an important sense as to his body and blood. The whole controversy relates to this latter point, viz. to the mode in which the body and blood of Christ are present in the Lord's Supper. In deciding this point, the Reformed theologians are very accurate in determining the different senses in which a thing may be said to be present. The word presence, they say, is a relative term and cannot be understood without reference to the object said to be present and the subject to which it is present for presence is nothing but the application of an object to the faculty suited to the perception of it. Hence, there is a twofold presence, viz. of things sensible and of things spiritual. The former are present, as the word imports, when they are proessensibus, so as to be perceived by the senses, the latter when they are presented to the intelligence, so as to be apprehended and enjoyed. Again, presence, even as to sensible objects, is not to be confounded with nearness. It stands opposed not to distance, but to absence. The sun is as near to us when absent at night as when present by day. A thing, therefore, may be present as to efficacy and virtue, which is at a great distance locally. In which of these senses are the body and blood of Christ present in the Lord's Supper? All the Reformed, in answer to this question, say that it is not in the sense of local nearness. The bread is neither transmuted into the body of Christ, as Romanists say, nor is his body locally present in, with, and under the bread, according to the Lutheran doctrine. The presence is to the mind, the object is not presented to the senses, but apprehended by faith. It is a presence of virtue and efficacy, not of propinquity. All these statements, both negative and positive, are found in the authorities referred to in the preceding pages. The Helvetic Confession, chapter 21, says, quote, The body of Christ is in heaven at the right hand of God, yet the Lord is not absent from his church when celebrating his supper. The Son is absent from us in heaven, nevertheless it is efficaciously present with us. How much more is Christ, the Son of Righteousness, though absent as to the body, present with us, not corporally indeed, but spiritually, by his vivifying influence. End quote. Calvin, in the Consensus Stigorinus, Article 21, says, quote, Every imagination of local presence is to be entirely removed, for while the signs are here on earth seen by the eyes and handled by the hands, Christ, so far as he is a man, is nowhere else than in heaven, and is to be sought only by the mind and by faith. It is therefore an irrational and impious superstition to include him in the earthly elements. End quote. 
In the tenth article it is taught that he is present in the promise, not in the signs. Ursinus, the principal author of the Heidelberg Catechism, in his exposition of that formulary, says, quote, These two, the sign and the thing signified, are united together in this sacrament, not by any copulation or corporal and local existence of one in the other, much less by transubstantiation or changing the one into the other, but by signifying, scaling, and exhibiting the one by the other. That is, by a sacramental union whose bond is the promise added to the bread, requiring the faith of the receivers. Whence it is clear that these things, in their lawful use, are always jointly exhibited and received, but not without faith of the promise, viewing and apprehending the thing promised, now present in the sacrament, yet not present or included in the sign as in a vessel containing it, but present in the promise which is the better part, the life and soul of the sacrament. For they want judgment who affirm that Christ's body cannot be present in the sacrament except it be in or under the bread, as if forsooth the bread alone without the promise were either the sacrament or the principal part of the sacrament. End quote. There is therefore a presence of Christ's body in the Lord's Supper, not local but spiritual, not for the senses but for the mind and to faith, not of nearness but of efficacy. This presence, as Zwingli said, if they want words, the reformed were willing to call real, if by real was understood not essential or corporal but true and efficacious, as opposed to imaginary or ineffective. So far as this point is concerned, there is no doubt as to the doctrine of the Reformed Church. What is meant by feeding on the body and blood of Christ? This question does not relate to the thing received, but simply to the mode of receiving, what is intended by sacramental mendication. In reference to this point, all the Reformed agreed as to the following particulars. 1. This eating was not with the mouth, either after the manner of ordinary food, which the Lutherans themselves denied, or in any other manner. The mouth was not, in this case, the organ of reception. 2. It is only by the soul that the body and blood of Christ are received. 3. It is by faith which is declared to be the hand and the mouth of the soul. 4. It is by or through the power of the Holy Ghost. As to all these points, there is a perfect agreement among the symbols of the Reformed Church. Consensus Tigerinus, Article 23, quote, That Christ feeds our souls with his body and blood, here set forth by the power of the Holy Ghost, is not to be understood as involving any mixture or transfusion of substance, but that we derive life from his body, once offered as a sacrifice, and from his blood, shed as an expiation. End quote. Belgic Confession, Article 35, God, it is said, sent Christ as the true bread from heaven, quote, which nourishes and sustains the spiritual life of believers if it be eaten, that is, if it be applied and received by the Spirit through faith, end quote. Ursinus, quote, There is then in the Lord's Supper a double meat and drink, one external, visible and terrene, namely bread and wine, and another internal. There is also a double eating and receiving, an external and signifying, which is the corporal receiving of the bread and wine, that is, that which is performed by the hands, mouth and senses of the body, and an internal, invisible and signified, which is the fruition of Christ's death, and a spiritual engrafting into Christ's body, that is, which is not performed by the hands and mouth, but by the spirit and faith." End quote. 
As to the question whether there is any difference between eating and believing, the authorities differ. The Zurich Confession and the Helvetic quoted above distinctly say there is not. The former says, eating is believing and believing is eating. The latter says, this eating takes place as often and whenever a man believes in Christ. So the Belgic Confession just quoted. Calvin, however, makes a distinction between the two. Eating, he says, is not faith but the effect of faith. There are some, he says, quote, who define in a word that to eat the flesh of Christ and to drink his blood is no other than to believe on Christ himself. But I conceive that in that remarkable discourse in which Christ recommends us to feed upon his body, he intended to teach us something more striking and sublime, namely that we are quickened by a real participation of him, which he designates by the terms eating and drinking that no person might suppose the life which we receive from him to consist in simple knowledge. At the same time we confess there is no eating but by faith, and it is impossible to imagine any other, but the difference between me and those whose opinion I now oppose is this. They consider eating to be faith itself, but I apprehend it to be rather a consequence of faith. End quote. We do not see the force of this distinction, it all depends upon the latitude given to the idea of faith. If you restrict it to knowledge and assent, there is room for the distinction between eating and believing. But if faith includes the real appropriation of Christ, it includes all Calvin seems to mean by both terms, eating and believing. This question is of no historical importance. It created no diversity of opinion in the church. The question whether eating the flesh of Christ and drinking his blood is confined to the Lord's Supper, in other words, whether there is any special benefit or communion with Christ to be had there, and which cannot elsewhere be obtained, the Romanists and Lutherans answer in the affirmative, the Reformed unanimously in the negative. They make indeed a distinction between spiritual and sacramental mendication. What is elsewhere received by faith without the signs and significant actions is in the sacraments received in connection with them. This is clearly taught in the Confession of Zurich, 1545, quoted above, also in the Second Helvetic Confession, as has already been shown. That confession vindicates this doctrine from the charge of rendering the sacrament useless. For, as it says, though we receive Christ once, we need to receive him continually and to have our faith strengthened from day to day. Calvin teaches the same doctrine in the Consensus Tigurinus, Article 19. Quote, the verity which is figured in the sacraments, believers receive extra eorum usum. Thus, in baptism, Paul's sins were washed away, which had already been blotted out. Baptism was to Cornelius the laver of regeneration, though he had before received the Spirit. And so in the Lord's Supper, Christ communicates himself to us, though he had already imparted himself to us and dwells within us. End quote. The office of the sacraments, he teaches, is to confirm and increase our faith. In his defense of this consensus, he expresses surprise that a doctrine so plainly proved by experience and scripture should be called into question. In the decree of the French National Synod of 1572, already quoted, it is said, quote, The same Lord Jesus, both as to his substance and gifts, is offered to us in baptism and the ministry of the word, and received by believers, end quote. We find the same doctrine in the Book of Common Prayer of the Church of England. In the Office for the Communion of the Sick, the minister is directed to instruct a parishioner who is prevented receiving the sacrament, quote, that 
if he do truly repent him of his sins and steadfastly believe that Jesus Christ hath suffered death for him on the cross and shed his blood for his redemption, earnestly remembering the benefits he hath thereby and giving him hearty thanks therefor, he doth eat and drink the body and blood of our Saviour Christ, profitably to his soul's health, though he do not receive the sacrament with his mouth. On this point, there was no diversity of opinion in any part of the Reformed Church. There was no communion of Christ, no participation of his body and blood, not offered to believers and received by them elsewhere than at the Lord's table and by other means. This is exalting the grace of God without depreciating the value of the sacraments. What is meant by the body and blood of Christ as received in the sacrament? The language employed in answer to this question is very various. It is said, we received Christ and all his benefits, his flesh and blood, his true body, his natural body, his substance, the substance of his flesh and blood. All these forms of expression occur. Calvin says, we receive the substance of Christ. The Gallican Confession says, we are fed with the substance of his body and blood. The Belgic Confession, that we received his natural body. The question is, what does this mean? There is one thing in which all parties agreed, viz. that our union with Christ was a real union, that we receive him and not his benefits merely, that he dwells in his people by his Spirit, whose presence is the presence of Christ. Though all meant this, this is not all that is intended by the expressions above cited. What is meant by saying we receive his flesh and blood, or the substance of them? The negative answer to this question given by the Reformers uniformly is, they do not mean that we partake of the material particles of Christ's body, nor do they express any mixture or transfusion of substance. The affirmative statement is, in general terms, just as uniform, that these expressions indicate the virtue, efficacy, life-giving power of his body. But there are two ways in which this was understood. Some intended by it not the virtue of Christ's body and blood as flesh and blood, but their virtue as a body broken and of blood as shed, that is, their sacrificial atoning efficacy. Others, however, insisted that besides this, there was a vivifying efficacy imparted to the body of Christ by its union with the divine nature, and that by the power of the Holy Ghost, the believer in the Lord's Supper and elsewhere, received into his soul and by faith this mysterious and supernatural influence. This was clearly Calvin's idea, though he often contented himself with the expression of the former of these views. His doctrine is fully expressed in the following passages. Quote, we acknowledge without any circumlocution that the flesh of Christ is life-giving, not only because once in it our salvation was obtained, but because now, we being united to him in sacred union, it breathes life into us. Or, to use fewer words, because being by the power of the Spirit engrafted into the body of Christ, we have a common life with him, for from the hidden fountain of divinity, life is, in a wonderful way, infused into the flesh of Christ, and thence flows out to us. Again, Christ is absent from us as to the body, by his Spirit, however, dwelling in us, he so lifts us to himself in heaven that he transfuses the life-giving vigour of his flesh into us, as we grow by the vital heat of the sun. End quote. From these and many similar passages, it is plain Calvin meant by receiving the substance of Christ's body, receiving its virtue or vigour, not merely as a sacrifice, but also the power inherent in it from its union with the divine nature, and flowing from it as heat from the sun. 
The other explanation of this matter is that by receiving the substance of Christ's body, or by receiving his flesh and blood, was intended receiving their life-giving efficacy as a sacrifice once offered on the cross for us. This view is clearly expressed in the Zurich Confession of 1545. Quote, to eat the bread of Christ is to believe on him as crucified. His flesh once benefited us on earth, now it benefits here no longer, and is no longer here. End quote. The same view is expressed by Calvin himself in the Consensus Tigurinus, 1549. In the 19th article, we are said to eat the flesh of Christ, quote, because we derive our life from that flesh once offered in sacrifice for us, and from his blood shed as an expiation, end quote. With equal clearness, the same idea is presented in the Heidelberg Catechism, 1560. In question 79, it is his crucified body and shed blood which are declared to be the food of the soul. The same thing is still more plainly asserted in the Helvetic Confession, 1566, chapter 21. In the first paragraph, it is said, quote, Christ as delivered unto death for us and as a saviour is the sum of this sacrament, end quote. In the third paragraph, this eating is explained as the application by the spirit of the benefits of Christ's death. And lower down, the food of the soul is declared to be caro Christi traditia pro nobis et sanguis edus effusus pro nobis. Indeed, as this confession was written by Bullinger, minister of Zurich, the great opponent of Calvin's peculiar view, it could not be expected to teach any other doctrine. In what is called the Anglican Confession, drawn up by Bishop Jewell, 1562, the same view is presented. It is there said, quote, We maintain that Christ exhibits himself truly present, that in the supper we feed upon him by faith and in the spirit, fide et spiritu, and that we have eternal life from his cross and blood, end quote. To draw life from the cross is here the same as to draw it from his blood, and of course must refer to the sacrificial efficacy of his death. The question now arises which of the two views above stated is entitled to be regarded as the real doctrine of the Reformed. The whole church united in saying believers receive the body and blood of Christ. They agreed in explaining this to mean that they received the virtue, efficacy or vigour of his body and blood but some understood thereby the virtue of his body as broken and of his blood as shed, that is, their sacrificial efficacy. Others said that besides this there was a mysterious virtue in the body of Christ due to its union with the divine nature, which virtue was by the Holy Spirit conveyed to the believer. Which of these views is truly symbolical? The fairest answer to this question probably is neither to the exclusion of the other. Those who held to the one expressed their fellowship with those who held the other. Calvin and Bullinger united in the Consensus Tigurinus, from which the latter view is excluded. Both views are expressed in the public confessions, some have the one, some the other. But if a decision must be made between them, the higher authority is certainly due to the doctrine of sacrificial efficacy first mentioned. 1. It has high symbolical authority in its favour. It's being clearly expressed in the Consensus Tigurinus, the common platform of the Church on this whole subject, and in the Second Helvetic Confession, the most authoritative of all the symbols of the Reformed Church, and even in the Heidelberg Catechism, outweighs the private authority of Calvin, or the dubious expression of the Gallican, Belgic, or some minor confessions. 2. 
What is perhaps of more real consequence, the sacrificial view is the only one that harmonizes with the other doctrines of the church. The other is an uncongenial foreign element, derived partly from the influence of previous modes of thought, partly from the dominant influence of the Lutherans, and the desire of getting as near to them as possible, and partly, no doubt, from a too literal interpretation of certain passages of Scripture, especially John 6, 54-58, and Ephesians 5:30. It is difficult to reconcile the idea that a life-giving influence emanates from the glorified body of Christ, with the universally received doctrine of the Reformed Church, that we receive Christ as fully through the ministry of the Word as in the Lord's Supper. However strongly some of the Reformed asserted that we partake of the true or natural body of Christ, and are fed by the substance of his flesh and blood, they all maintained that this was done whenever faith in him was exercised. Not to urge this point, however. All the Reformed taught, Calvin perhaps more earnestly than most others, that our union with Christ since the Incarnation is the same in nature as that enjoyed by the saints under the old dispensation. This is perfectly intelligible if the virtue of his flesh and blood, which we receive in the Lord's Supper, is its virtue as a sacrifice because he was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. His sacrifice was as effectual for the salvation of Abraham as of Paul, and could be appropriated as fully by the faith of the one as by that of the other. But, if the virtue in question is a mysterious power due to the hypostatical union flowing from Christ's body in heaven, it must be a benefit peculiar to believers living since the Incarnation. It is impossible that those living before the Advent could partake of Christ's body in this sense, because it did not then exist. It had not as yet been assumed into union with the divine nature. We find therefore that Romanists and nominal Protestants make the greatest distinction as to the relation of the ancient saints to God and that of believers since the Advent, between the sacraments of the one dispensation and those of the other. All this is consistent and necessary on their theory of the Incarnation, of the Church and of the sacraments, but it is all in the plainest contradiction to the doctrine of the Reformed Church. Here, then, is an element which does not accord with the other doctrines of that church, and this incongruity is one good reason for not regarding it as a genuine portion of its faith. Another good reason for this conclusion is that the doctrine almost immediately died out of the church. It had no root in the system and could not live. We hear nothing from the immediate successes of Calvin and Beza of this mysterious, or as it was sometimes called, miraculous influence of Christ's heavenly body. Turretin, Beza's contemporary, expressly discards it. So does Pictet, who followed Turretin, and so do the Reformed theologians as a body. As a single indication of this fact, we refer to Craig's Catechism, written under an order of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland of 1590, and sanctioned by that body in 1592. It will be remembered that the Scotch Confession of 1560, before quoted, follows the very language of Calvin on this particular point. In Craig's Catechism, however, we have the following exhibition of the subject. Question, what signifieth the action of the supper? Answer, that our souls are fed spiritually by the body and blood of Jesus Christ, John 6.54. Question 71, when is this done? Answer, when we feel the efficacy of his death in our consciences by the spirit of faith, John 6.33. Question 75, is Christ's body in the elements? Answer, no, but it is in heaven, Acts 1.11. Question 76, why then is the element called his body? Answer, because it is a sure seal of his body given to our souls.
in the Confession of Faith used in the English Congregation of Geneva, the very first in date of the symbols of the Scotch Church, it is said, quote, So the supper declareth that God, a provident Father, doth not only feed our bodies, but also nourishes our souls with the graces and benefits of Jesus Christ, which the Scriptures calleth eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood, end quote. It is, of course, admitted that a particular doctrine's dying out of the faith of a church is, of itself, no sufficient evidence that it was not a genuine part of its original belief. This is too obvious to need remark. There is, however, a great difference between a doctrine's being lost by a process of decay and by the process of growth. It is very possible that a particular opinion may be engrafted into a system without having any logical or vital union with it, and is the more certain to be ejected, the more vigorous the growth and healthful the life of that system. The fundamental principles of Protestantism are the exclusive normal authority of Scripture and justification by faith alone. If that system lives and grows, it must throw off everything incompatible with those principles. It is the fact of this peculiar view of a mysterious influence of the glorified body of Christ, having ceased to live, taken in connection with its obvious incompatibility, with other articles of the Reformed faith, that we urge as a collateral argument against its being a genuine portion of that system of doctrine. According to the most authoritative standards of the Reformed Church, we receive the body and blood of Christ as a sacrifice, just as Abraham and David received them, who ate of the same spiritual meat and drank of the same spiritual drink. The Church is one, its life is one, its food is one, from Adam to the last of the redeemed. What is the effect of receiving the body and blood of Christ? This question is nearly allied to the preceding. In general terms, it is answered by saying that union with Christ and the consequent reception of his benefits is the effect of the believing reception of the Lord's Supper. In the Basel Confession, it is said, quote, So that we, as members of his body, as our true head, live in him and he in us. End quote. The Geneva Catechism says the effect is, that we coalesce with him in the same life. The Scotch Confession says, quote, We surely believe that he abides in them, believers, and they in him, so that they become flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. End quote. The Heidelberg Catechism has much the same words, adding, And ever live and are governed by one spirit as the members of our body by one soul. The Second Helvetic Confession says the effect of the Lord's Supper is such an application of the purchase of Christ's death by the Holy Spirit that he lives in us and we in him. So the Anglican Confession and others. In explaining the nature of this union between Christ and his people, the Reformed Standards reject entirely, as we have already seen, everything like corporeal contact or the mixture or transfusion of substance. The proof of this point has already been sufficiently presented. We add only the language of Calvin. He says, in opposition to the Lutherans, quote, If they insist that the substance of Christ's flesh is mingled with the soul of man, in how many absurdities do they involve themselves? End quote. See also his Institutes, Book 4, Chapters 17 and 32. In this negative statement as to the nature of this union, all the Reformed agree, they agreed also in the affirmative statement that we receive Christ himself and not merely his benefits. The union with Christ is a real and not an imaginary or merely moral one. This is often expressed by saying we receive the substance of Christ, i.e., as they explain it, 
Christ himself, or the Holy Spirit, by whom he dwells in his people. Their common mode of representation is that contained in the Consensus Tigurinus. Hec spiritualis est communicatio quam habemus cum filio Dei, dum spiritu suo in nobis habitans faciat credentes omnes omnium quae in se resident bonorum compotes. The mode in which this subject is represented in Scripture and in the Reformed Standards is that when the Holy Spirit comes to one of God's chosen with saving power, the soul is regenerated. The first exercise of its new life is faith. Christ is thereby received, the union with him is thus consummated, and on this follows the imputation of righteousness and all saving benefits. The only question is whether, besides this union affected by the Holy Spirit, there is on our part any participation of Christ's human body or of his human nature as such. This takes us back to the question already considered relating to the mode of reception and the thing received when it is said in Scripture that we eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. As to these questions, it will be remembered, the Reformed agreed as to the following points. 1. That this reception is by the soul. 2. Through faith, not through the mouth. 3. By the power of the Holy Ghost. 4. That this receiving Christ's body is not confined to the Lord's Supper, but takes place whenever faith in him is exercised. 5. That it was common to believers before and after the coming of the Son of God in the flesh. We have here a complete estoppel of the claim of the authority of the Reformed Church in behalf of the doctrine that our union with Christ involves a participation of his human body, nature, or life. If it be asked, however, in what sense that Church teaches that we are flesh of Christ's flesh and bone of his bones, the answer is in the same sense in which Paul says the same thing. And his meaning is very plain. He tells us that a husband should love his wife as his own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. His wife is himself, for the scriptures say they are one flesh. All this, he adds, is true of Christ and his people. He loves the church as himself. She is his bride, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. If the intimate relationship, the identification of feelings, affections and interests between a man and his wife, if their spiritual union justifies the assertion that they are one flesh, far more may the same thing be said of the spiritual relation between Christ and his people, which is much more intimate, sublime and mysterious, arising as it does from the inhabitation of one and the same spirit, and producing not only a union of feeling and affection, but of life. The same apostle tells us that believers are one body and members one of another, not in virtue of their common human nature, nor because they all partake of the humanity of Christ, but because they all have one spirit. Such as we understand it is the doctrine of the Reformed Church and of the Bible as to the mystical union. What efficacy belongs to the Lord's Supper as a sacrament? On this point, the Reformed, in the first place, reject the Romish doctrine that the sacraments contain the grace they signify, and that they convey that grace by the mere administration to all who do not oppose an obstacle. Secondly, the Lutheran doctrine, which attributes to the sacraments an inherent supernatural power, due indeed not to the signs but the word of God connected with them, but which is nevertheless always operative, provided there be faith in the receiver. Thirdly, the doctrine of the Sicinians and others that the sacraments are mere badges of profession or empty signs of Christ and his benefits. 
They are declared to be efficacious means of grace, but their efficacy, as such, is referred neither to any virtue in them, nor in him that administers them, but solely to the attending operation or influence of the Holy Spirit, precisely as in the case of the Word. It is the virtus spiritus sancti extrinsecus accedens, to which all their supernatural or saving efficacy is preferred. They have indeed the moral objective power of significant emblems and seals of divine appointment, just as the word has its inherent moral power, but their efficacy as means of grace, their power, in other words, to convey grace depends entirely, as in the case of the word, on the cooperation of the Holy Ghost. Hence the power is in no way tied to the sacraments. It may be exerted without them. It does not always attend them, nor is it confined to the time, place, or service. The favourite illustration of the Lutheran doctrine is drawn from the history of the woman who touched the hem of our Saviour's garment. As there was always supernatural virtue in him which flowed out to all who applied to him in faith, so there is in the sacraments. The Reformed doctrine is illustrated by a reference to our Saviour's anointing the eyes of the blind man with the clay. There was no virtue in the clay to make the man see. The effect was due to the attending power of Christ. The modern rationalists smile at these distinctions and say it all amounts to the same thing. These three views, however, are radically different in themselves and have produced radically different effects where they have severally prevailed. All the points, both negative and positive, included in the statement of the Reformed doctrine above given are clearly presented with perfect unanimity in their symbolical books. In the Gallican Confession, Article 34, it is said, we acknowledge that these external signs are such that through them God operates by the power of his Holy Spirit. Helvetic Confession 2, chapter 19, We do not sanction the doctrine that grace and the things signified are so bound to the signs or included in them that those who receive the signs receive also the blessings they represent. When this fails, the fault is indeed in the receiver, just as in the case of the word, God in both offers his grace. His word does not cease to be true and divine, nor do the sacraments lose their integrity because men do not receive them in faith and to their salvation. See chapter 21 at the end. The consensus Tigorinus teaches, as we have already seen, that the sacraments have no virtue in themselves as means of grace. Si quid boni nobis per sacramenta confertur, id non fit propria, eorum virtute, Deus enim solus est, qui spiritu suo agit. Article 12. In the following articles it is taught that they benefit only believers, that grace is not tied to them, that believers receive elsewhere the same grace, and that the blessing often follows long after the administration. The Scotch Confession, chapter 21, teaches that the whole benefit flows from faith apprehending Christ, who alone renders the sacraments efficacious. In the Geneva Catechism, the question is asked, Do you believe that the power and efficacy of the sacrament, instead of being included in the element, flow entirely from the Spirit of God? Answer, so I believe. That is, should it please the Lord to exercise his power through his own instruments to the end to which he has appointed them? It is not worthwhile to multiply quotations, for as to this point there was no diversity of opinion. We would only refer the reader to Calvin's Institutes, Book 4, Chapter 14, a passage which, though directed against the Romanists, has a much wider scope. 
He there declares it to be a purely diabolical error to teach men to expect justification from the sacraments instead of from faith, and insists principally on two things, first, that nothing is conferred through the sacraments beyond what is offered in the word, and secondly, that they are not necessary to salvation, the blessings may be had without them. He confirms his own doctrine by the saying of Augustine, Invisibilem sanctificationem sine visibili signo esse posse, et visibili rursum signum sine vera sanctificatione. Such then, as we understand it, is the true doctrine of the Reformed Church on the Lord's Supper. By the Reformed Church we mean the Protestant churches of Switzerland, the Palatinate, France, Belgium, England, Scotland, and elsewhere. According to the public standards of these churches, the Lord's Supper is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ as a memorial of his death, wherein, under the symbols of bread and wine, his body is broken for us, and his blood, as shed for the remission of sins, are signified, and, by the power of the Holy Ghost, sealed and applied to believers, whereby their union with Christ and their mutual fellowship are set forth and confirmed, their faith strengthened, and their souls nourished unto eternal life. Christ is really present to his people in this ordinance, not bodily, but by his spirit, not in the sense of local nearness, but of efficacious operation. They receive him not with the mouth, but by faith. They receive his flesh, not as flesh, not as material particles, nor its human life, but his body as broken and his blood as shed. The union thus signified and effected between him and them is not a corporeal union, nor a mixture of substances, but spiritual and mystical, arising from the indwelling of the Spirit. The efficacy of this sacrament, as a means of grace, is not in the signs, nor in the service, nor in the minister, nor in the word, but solely in the attending influence of the Holy Ghost. This we believe to be a fair statement of the doctrine of the Reformed Church. End of section 19